0: Hi there, welcome along to another episode of The High Performance Podcast. We have a club and we would love you to be part of it. It's called The High Performance Circle. And to get there, all you need to do is go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, enter your email address, we'll send you an invite, And then you are in the club. We've already had thousands of people signing up. And this is exclusive access to podcast episodes that you haven't heard. Uh, Keynote speeches from amazing, inspiring people. Short, sharp, 15-minute boosts so that whenever you need it, you can just head there and you can get access to something that will make you feel better. This is about us giving you even more from The High Performance Podcast. We are so excited about it. Um, It's going to grow. It's going to be special. Get in there early. Get involved in The High Performance Circle. Best of all, it's totally free. Just go to thehighperformancepodcast.com, pop your email address in, and we'll send you an invite. As well as that, we have our first book coming out at the end of 2021. It's being released in December, but the good news is you can pre-order it right now. And once again, The pre-orders are coming in. Um, Thank you so much to everyone that's ordered the book already. Um, We also love the fact that it's being ordered by people right across the world. So wherever you are on planet Earth, if you've ordered the High Performance book, thank you so much. And if you would like to pre-order it, then you can do that by just going to the description for this podcast. And the link is right there to get involved. Right, let's get to it. Time for another episode of the High Performance Podcast. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi there, I'm Jake Comfrey and you're listening to High Performance, the podcast that delves into the minds of some of the most successful leaders, visionaries, entrepreneurs and artists on the planet and aims to unlock the very secrets to their success. As ever, I'm not alone. Our resident professor and author, Damien Hughes, is with us. And look, Damien, on this podcast, we're fascinated by leadership, and it doesn't get an awful lot bigger than leading something that has tens of thousands of people in its command and a budget of tens of billions. It's mind-blowing, Jake, and um, I'm really excited about today's
2: guest. I was fortunate enough to speak to my brother-in-law, who worked with our guest today and when i asked for his impression he he described him in three ways he said he he had high energy he was intelligent in that he knew his stuff but above all that he was authentic and he behaved with integrity so they're the three characteristics that i'm excited to
0: explore very nice okay then today we take lessons in leadership from a man whose resolve reverberated across the planet a man who made decisions that directly impacted millions of people at a time so how do you develop such courage of your convictions how do you push forwards with your beliefs when you know that intense scrutiny possibly monumental failure lies ahead how do you learn to trust your instincts on the biggest of stages You're listening to a true lesson in leadership from a man who has spent his life on the front line of decision making, quite literally. Please welcome former head of the British Army General, the Lord Richard Dannett. Lovely to have you with us. Thanks, Jake. Delighted to be here. Well, let's start then, as we always do. What is high performance?
3: Life is pretty complex. I try and simplify life, particularly when I'm talking about what you need to do in life to young people, children, prize givings, and so on. And I say that high performance is driven by aiming high, being the best that you can, and remembering that courage is key. Life is not as simple as ABC, but it's actually surprising how often, when I give a talk based on aiming high, being the best, and saying that courage is key, people play that back to me. I was on the train from uh, Norwich to London a few years ago. A chap looked at me and said, aim high, be the best, courage is key. He'd obviously listen to what I said. So those three things I find actually drive high performance. So where did your courage come from then?
0: Because you didn't come from a a military family. Your father was was not in, in the military. I know you were talking about studying law at university, but that didn't happen. Yet you take that into the most stunning military career where courage is probably at the heart of every decision you made. At what age would you say you became
3: courageous? That's a good question. I've never really thought about what age you become courageous. I think courage is, well, there are two types of courage. We have to remember this. There's physical courage, which is the sort of courage that you might develop as a schoolboy. You make that crunching tackle to, to save the game or to win the game. But then the other kind of courage, which is almost the more important kind of courage, is moral courage, identifying what the right thing to do is and then doing the right thing that gets more difficult. And of course, it's been often said that those two types of courage are differentiated by the fact that physical courage, you can run out of. But moral courage, the more times you do the right thing, then actually you find that your stock of moral courage is even greater. When did I first discover courage? I think it's just something that you do. It's part of you. You quite rightly said in your introduction, I didn't come from a military family. Actually, my maternal grandfather went right through the First World War, 14 to 18, and my second, my, my father, I went right through the Second World War. What I was going to do in life, I hadn't really thought through until my last couple of years at school, when I thought possibly the army was something that attracted me. My mother was horrified. Her generation had grown up through the war. A lot of people were killed. Why would anybody voluntarily want to join the army? So she was horrified. But it was actually, it was something with the sort of lifestyle, the sort of outdoor, physical side of life, the people-oriented aspect of the army that attracted me to it. But you're right. um, Those older and wiser than me at school said, don't join the army. Um, I think you should go to Cambridge, read law, and um, become a barrister. And um, I went along with that. I did the Oxbridge exams. I was called to Cambridge for an interview. And someone had said to me, one question you're bound to be asked in the interview is, do you do any law reading? And a really good answer to give is, yes, sir, I read the law reports in the Times. Well, I, I remembered that. The interview was going quite well. Then the question came, do you do any law reading? Yes, sir, I heard myself say, I read the law reports in the Times. And I thought, good answer. What cases recently have caught your interest? I thought, oh, that's a bit sharp. <laughs> well, you only had to be vaguely news aware in the late 1960s, the bodies on the Moore trial. Um, and as quickly as I could, I said, the bodies on the Moore trial. And I thought, good, you mentioned a trial. And what about that trial did you find so interesting? And I thought, we're getting really well below the belt here. And as quickly as I could, I said, well, the fact the criminals got away with it for so long. And he looked over his half glasses at me and said, I think, Mr. Danat, you might be better suited to joining the police force than reading law in this college. So I didn't go to Cambridge. I went to (laughs) Sandhurst. I joined the army and did what I wanted to do.
2: And after that, what a life. Yeah, incredible. But what fascinates me then, Richard, is that... You speak about this idea of this moral courage, and yet you were going into a military life at a time where there was an awful lot of politically turbulent times going on, whether it was the Troubles in, in Ireland or some of the other more global, complex, ambiguous situations. How did you feel that you could make a difference by joining the military in, uh, and doing
3: the right thing in in occasions like that? I think it would be wrong if I gave you a high-minded answer, because actually life doesn't start like that. I mean, I was 18 when I went to Sandhurst. In those days, it was a two-year course. I mean, now it's a one-year course. I think we were probably slow learners, so we took two years, <laughs> but we were all school boys. Um, guys, at, guys and girls at Sandhurst now are by and large graduates, so they're three or four years older. So it was very much that two-year course was our growing up period, if you like. Um, I commissioned, I think it was on the 30th of July, Uh, 1971. And two and a half weeks later, I was commanding a platoon of 27 soldiers on the streets of Belfast. Um, I didn't have any great high-minded thing about, you know, my job as a community commissioned second lieutenant was to sort out the problems of Northern Ireland. I was just joining my battalion in Northern Ireland and, and doing my job three weeks later, I was down to 19 soldiers. The intensity of what was going on in Belfast and Northern Ireland in the early 70s was, was was huge. I had a number of soldiers blown up, a couple shot. Luckily on that tour, everybody recovered and survived. But you grow up pretty quickly. When I reflect now, before we send a battalion on a posting to Iraq or Afghanistan, we put them through a three or four month pre-deployment training period. Well, I had 10 days leave, a weekend at the divisional depot, was in command of a party of 40 recruits from the depot going to join the Greenhards and the Duke of Wellington's regiment. And then lo and behold, I was in Belfast. I arrived at Flack Street Mill and was met by a young officer who said, I've got three hours to hand seven platoon over to you. I'm about to go to battalion headquarters to take over as operations officer because he was shot last night. So within in three or four hours of arriving in Belfast, I found myself commanding a platoon of soldiers on the streets without any pre-deployment training at all. You learn pretty fast well? in those experiences. Is
2: this at 19 years of age as well? I was 20.
3: Wow. Yeah, in fact, 1977 was the only year in the 70s I didn't serve in Northern Ireland. Was just, that was just the preoccupation of, of the army at the time. And what would you say that
2: taught you that... You were still using 20 or 30 years later, that quite literal
3: baptism of fire? Well, the great advantage you have as a young officer commanding a platoon is you've got a platoon sergeant who is an older, more experienced person. And I learned very quickly that I had much to learn from Sergeant Dennis Hurst. I guess he was probably in his mid 30s. As I said, I was 20. I was in charge. I was in command, I had to take responsibility for the decisions that I made but equally I'd be a fool if I didn't listen to his experience. So learning from others and garnering their experiences and applying to yourself is, is a really important lesson to learn early on.
0: You're still very young there and you're still in command of a, of, of a group despite the fact that there was someone senior that you could lean on when you needed to. So did you suffer with inferiority complex or did you feel like you belonged?
3: It takes a while to be accepted. I mean I Grew up in Essex. I joined the Green Howards, which is a North Yorkshire Regiment. Most of the soldiers come from Middlesbrough, pretty tough area. They had had a previous platoon commander they'd had for two years. And then suddenly this very fresh-faced youth turned up and was their new boss. So I had to earn their respect. The sergeant I mentioned, then there were three very experienced corporals and three fairly experienced lance corporals, and then quite a lot of quite senior soldiers, most of whom were older than me, yet I was the second lieutenant, I was the platoon commander. Something else that helps put it in perspective, I realised years later that the platoon sergeant and the three corporals were actually paid more than I was, even though I was in command and had to take decisions. And you had to take decisions, and you had to make a plan, and you had to live and accept the responsibility for your actions. A very fast growing up experience.
2: So that decision-making process fascinates me. How could you square away some of the decisions that would have been quite morally ambiguous or difficult,
3: I imagine, with your own values? As far as decision-making is concerned, and this applies more widely in my own experience, you make decisions in two sets of circumstances. You can make a deliberate decision when you've got time, and then you have to make a hasty instinctive decision when you haven't got time when you're making a more deliberate decision and this applied I found much more later in my career when I was a more senior officer it was a question of having a good team of people around you that you trusted and would draw out from them their ideas their views on what we should be doing to solve this particular problem and I always took the view that all views were welcome until the point when you had to make a decision. Once you've made a decision, then all effort should go into implementing that decision and making it work successfully. The more instinctive process, which I found as platoon commander on the streets, you know, you're patrolling at night and suddenly there's the crack of rifle fire. You've got to make an instant decision and you can't consult anybody. It's your training. It's your instinct. And that's when your leadership really kicks in. And as I often say when I'm talking about leadership, it's that moment when the faces turn to you with the unspoken question, what do we do now? You've got to take a decision and you've got to lead from the front.
2: So what would you do if you didn't know what to do in that moment when the faces turn to you?
3: I think if you didn't know what to do, I think you probably would try and find a way of pausing, summing up the situation and working out a better plan. But, I mean, on my second tour in Northern Ireland, we got ourselves involved in a very difficult set of circumstances on the 7th of February 1973 in in East Belfast. There was a major rioting situation going on, which developed into shooting. I was told to take my platoon to dominate a particular series of road junctions. As we approached that road junction, and it was a part of Belfast we'd never been in before, we had one map and I had it, and one radio and I had it, and was desperately trying to make sure that we found our, our way to the, the right road junction. We came under fire as we moved down that road, debussed from our vehicles, and there was a three-way junction, so I deployed one of my three sections dominating each of the roads. But the road we'd just driven down we came under a lot of fire from that road well rather like the situation you just asked me about what do you do when you're not quite sure what to do think coronation street type streets wreck houses with very narrow doorways nowhere to hide well frankly the only thing to do was to attack so we set off down the street myself and four soldiers on the left hand side my corporal corporal austin um, four soldiers on the other side of the street and we skirmished down the street exchanging fire with the terrorists actually we, we shot two dead others came out with white flags and a sort of, that sort of thought went through my mind step forward to accept the enemy's surrender well I was about to do that and Corbostone said don't do that sir and it was just as well because there was another gunman in depth who then opened up at which point discretion became the better part of valour and we withdrew back to where the rest of the platoon was so what had been successful up to that point, I'm afraid things then changed. Two gunmen outflanked where we were. And I was just in the process of briefing one of my other corporals to move his position, standing at the back of my Land Rover. And my driver was down beside acting as a sentry. So I had one of these guys on either side of me. Two more shots rang out, and the corporal I was talking to went flat on his back with a bullet in the chest. And my driver slumped with a bullet in the back. Tragic. The driver died. Corporal Howell actually survived it was quite extraordinary big heavyweight boxer knocked flat on his back we dragged him to cover unzipped his jacket his flat jacket and there was the bullet head it had just pierced his skin trickle of blood we said well you're a lucky sir and said put that in your pocket and carry on but Tupper Hall my driver very sadly died I'd been standing between these two guys I had the map and flapping my hands I told everyone earlier in the day to put their steel helmets on but I'd been too busy so I was still wearing my berries. so they were probably shooting at me but actually hit the other two guys. But when the guys either side of you drop, it starts to focus your mind a bit, actually.
0: What was your relationship like with fear at this point?
3: Well, when you're in charge, you haven't got time to be fearful. Earlier that day, and a lot of this came out in conversation afterwards, one of the guys said to me, didn't you see that bullet pinging off the wall above your head? well if i had i'd probably got a crap conquers fortunately i didn't because when you're the g- guy in charge you've got the radio you've got the map you're focusing on on the mission and i'm really glad that i i was so focused i mean that's how conflict yeah has been throughout history it's a, it's it's a brutal activity when people who are fit one minute are either dead the next minute or they're seriously injured what's
2: intriguing there though richard for anyone listening to this is that They maybe not facing life and death circumstances as you were, but how did you learn to control those emotions of panic and fear to be able to still make clear-headed, rational decisions? What lessons did you learn that enabled you to do that?
3: Well, it might sound corny, but I think this is where training actually takes over, and that's why the Army is a brilliant organisation for training people. Whether you're training people... In field craft, uh, sort of to operate in the countryside, or whether you were training staff officers to deal with really major problems. Most unusually, we take the brightest officers for a year in their early 30s and train them to become senior staff officers and senior commanders. That's investing a year in their early 30s. There are not many businesses that would actually do that. So, training is really important. and. An important thing about training is that you try and replicate as many situations that people might come across so that they've been there before and have got sort of handrails to take them through. You can't replicate everything. You'll suddenly find yourself sometimes in circumstances that you've never been in before. But um, that's where you've got to use your intelligence, use your wit, use your instinctiveness. That's also governed to a fair degree by your training.
0: It would also have been a period in your life where you would have learned an incredible amount about other people because your life depended on the people who were around you and, and their life depended on yours. So what did that teach you about recruiting the right kind of people?
3: Yes, I mean, it's the right kind of people to do what kind of job. I served in an infantry regiment. The infantry is the sort of most basic part of the army. You know, however sophisticated warfare might have become... At the end of the day, it's boots on the ground that always close with an issue. A war is essentially a human activity, and it's settled by people on the ground. So you want to recruit the kind of people who are going to be your foot soldiers, who are prepared to be trained, to be fit, to follow instructions, not blindly. And this, of course, is a very interesting aspect of leadership. Soldiers are very canny people. Of course, they will do what you tell them to do, because discipline requires them to do that. But if they don't really agree with what you You're asking them to do and don't really want to follow you, they will do it most unenthusiastically. They'll do it to the minimum. But if they actually believe in what you're asking them to do, if they believe in you, they'll do it very, very enthusiastically. And that'll be a very successful formula. So you need those kind of people to get the job done. But then you need to have a cohort of people who are well educated. Increasingly, the army recruits, graduates, you know, have had that three or four years at university, studying something, developing themselves, so that you've got good people around you who are experts in their own field. In, in my view, well, in any, in any field of work, nobody can know everything about everything. But if you've got the right group of experts around you, you've probably got someone who knows a lot about various aspects of the issue. So it's a question of getting good people around, around you to help you make decisions And then make sure you've got a good team of people with you who are going to help you implement those decisions. You're describing there very much like the physics
2: of recruiting people. But it's the chemistry of those people then in terms of how they interact that is particularly fascinating. So as you're describing it there, what's coming to mind is the example from I think it was a 1973 Yom Kippur war where Israeli intelligence had all intelligent smart people around them but they failed to to avoid groupthink in terms of what the egyptian forces were intending to do and what i understand is they invented the 10th man rule of somebody that had to be the provocateur the dissenting voice to force that which is always like the chemistry of a team how did you go about avoiding that groupthink of recruiting people from similar backgrounds that that then conceded to the
3: hierarchy of of military decision making yeah there, there, that is a potential weakness of a military hierarchical system that the boss is by definition more senior than everybody else so there is a danger of everyone thinking well that's what the boss wants to do so that's what we'll do but certainly when i was in more senior appointments and it's not something just down to me but it's something that we routinely do is in our decision making and our testing of the decisions is have a red team, if you like, to argue the other side of the, of the coin, to test the, the assumptions, to test the decisions that you've taken, to see if the course of action that you've chosen actually is robust. And then we often do, as we call, we do the what if game. Um, you know, this is the plan, and we're doing this, but then the person you've asked to lead the red team then throws in a what if. And that tests the strength of your plan. And this, of course, is where politicians get a bad name. And it's, I think, unfairly so. Politicians are often criticized for a U turn. I have no problem with U turns. If the circumstances in which you based your original decision have then changed significantly, then quite rightly, you should go around the decision action cycle again. And review the plan, the decisions that you made previously against the new set of circumstances. And if those circumstances have changed, the ultimate objective may not have changed, but your scheme of maneuver has got to change. So we'll do this a different way. So responding to what ifs and having a red team to throw things at you in training and then carrying that through to whatever you're doing in life is, is really important. So, what would you say was the most valuable what if? in real terms that forced you to make a different decision than what you might have intended probably the most satisfying part of my military career was when i was commander of british forces in bosnia in 95 96 the bosnian war was a very messy three headed war between the serbs the croats and the and the bosniaks the uh, uh, the muslims very nasty civil war really from 92 to 95 i was commander of british forces we were still under the UN mandate at the time, as we then began to bring them to realise that the fighting was not not the way. There needs to be a strategic decision that, 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 end, that ended the war. So managing the ceasefire, a big peace conference was held in Dayton, in the United States, and then we then had the task of implementing on the ground the terms of the peace agreement. And, you know, you think that soldiers, it's all about fighting, the most satisfying part of my military career was playing a role in ending that war. And I remember going to a Serb village and saying to a group of old men, actually, the war is over. We've now come to bring peace. And those old men cried. And there's something really moving about when old men cry because they suddenly realised they had hope. It's a rather long preamble to answering your question. But um, we had a problem in that we had to control the whole of Bosnia. Hitherto, we'd only operated in the Croat and Muslim-controlled part. We'd never been able to operate in the Serb-controlled part. But I knew I had to operate in the Serb area. But what I didn't know was how the Serbs were going to react. Their leadership had signed up to the peace agreement, but would the word really get down to to their soldiers on the front line? And we had to cross the front line to operate in their area. So I decided that the best thing to do was to go across the front line to meet their senior leadership and say, look, I'm now the NATO guy with a strong mandate is now going to impose this peace settlement on you, which your leadership has signed up to. Don't let this go wrong at your level. Make sure that you brief your people right down to the junior soldier on the roadblock when we're going to cross the ceasefire line to make sure that he doesn't shoot at us because we've come to bring peace. So I, I had to go across to Banyaluka. I took a bunch of Hereford hooligans with me, um, just to keep safe. We met the senior Serb general and I said exactly what our plan was going to be. On that day, at that time, at that place, we would cross the line. Do not shoot at us because we're coming to end this war. And it worked. When we crossed, the Serb soldiers were in their best uniforms. So it was the right thing to do, to uh, take a bit of a risk crossing the line several days beforehand to um, make sure that they were briefed and that the peace process held. In, in many ways
0: that beautiful story is an example of the power of humankind the ability to go and have a conversation on a level with someone who at that time was still an enemy but i wonder how much the other side of the ability of a human being to create carnage and despair and death and havoc challenged you in that particular war because it was a harrowing conflict and you are you have a strong christian faith and i wonder how the how the two sat together
3: well, the two sit together because it, it's a sad fact of human nature. It's a sad fact of who we are, that bad things happen, evil things happen. At low level, it's, it's, it's someone who chooses to be a bank robber or, 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 or whatever, or whether it's someone, an extreme example like Adolf Hitler, who takes control of a whole country and, and does all the outrageous things we know that Nazi Germany did. In the same token, you look to see what happened on the Serb side, Croat side, and Muslim side, in the Bosnian civil war, awful things which should not have happened in the twentieth century. So you have to accept as just a function of life as we live it that bad things will happen. From Christian point of view, you have to accept that if evil is not confronted by good, evil will triumph. And um, you know we've just just been celebrating Easter, haven't we? You know, the story of of Christ who lived his life for 30-odd years, and then bad men crucified him and tried to kill him. But actually, because of who he was as the Son of God, he triumphed over that. And it showed that good can overcome evil. I mean, I think in the context of this conversation about leadership, you can look at many people whose leadership styles you choose to follow. But Christ's style of leadership is a really interesting one. The motto of the Royal Military Academy Sandhurst is serve to lead. Christ, on the Thursday before he was crucified, did the most menial job, washed his disciples' feet. So by serving them, he earned the right to lead them. And that's what serve to lead is all about, is that you serve your soldiers in order to earn the right to lead them. And in terms of leadership styles, Christ's leadership style is a very simple one. He just said, follow me. He didn't say why, but he was an example that people chose to follow or didn't choose to follow. And that I found being a really important thing as far as I'm concerned. Yes, my Christian faith defines who I am. i prefer not to shout about it too much, but as it defines who I am, I will therefore do what I do in the way that I believe is right. If people then want to follow me and think I'm doing the right thing, well, then that's my belief working through to who I am and what I'm doing and take it or leave it.
0: So that period... Did it challenge your faith or strengthen it?
3: My faith was challenged as a young man. I mean, I've told you about the moment when the soldiers either side of me were shot. That evening, back in barracks, I thought to myself, gosh, was I just lucky or, or was someone trying to say something to me? It's often said that there are no atheists in a foxhole. You know, when the issues of life and death confront, you then think quite deep things. Well, you know, as a young man, I shrugged it off. A couple of years later, operating in the border area near Crossmaglen, we were conducting an operation to diffuse an improvised explosive device. And I was with my company commander and a a four man team to deal with a large milk churn, which we thought was an explosive device. We moved forward, Peter Willis, myself, and the team of of four, uh, to show them where we thought was a safe vantage point them to start their clearance work. As we started to go forward Peter Willis stopped me and gave me an air photograph and said "Um, don't bother to come any further forward I want you to lead another operation here this weekend just familiarise yourself with the ground from this photograph. Well he and the others went forward about 30 yards forward 30 seconds later there was a tremendous explosion and all four of them were killed. Now I realised if he hadn't stopped me it would have been five killed because I'd have been three paces behind him. You know, again, that evening back in Crossman County Police Station, you know, I thought, oh, gosh, was that was I just lucky or or what? So there were several times when I realised that my life, on a balance of probabilities, would probably have been lost. But actually, it hadn't been. So what I decided for myself was that this isn't the dress rehearsal. This is the full act. Let's live the best way you possibly can, do your duty in the best possible way, aim high, be the best, remember that courage is key, and be the best person that you can be. So it was a kind of religious deduction, if you like, but um, it came out of the realisation that um, on a balance of probabilities, I wouldn't still be here. Selling a little or a lot?
0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: How did you balance confronting such horrific circumstances with also being a, a partner and a father to four children?
3: Well, when most of, most of those circumstances Particularly in Northern Ireland in the 1970s, uh, it was before I was married. Right. So you're thinking less about other people and more about the job and yourself. Subsequently, um, whether it was during the operations in Bosnia or or more recently uh, in and out of Iraq and Afghanistan, then there are other considerations. Yes, Philip and my wife, um, four children. So you you do think about them. And the issue of priorities is something perhaps we can come back to later. But while you keep those things in mind, you really have to focus on the job in hand and do what you believe is right. Because if you don't, you'll hesitate, you'll falter, and that's when you'll probably make a mistake.
2: So do you feel that being a father later on in your career made you a better soldier?
3: Well, if we're now being very honest, and I would imagine my family will probably at some stage hear this, I don't think I was as good a husband and father as I might have been, because I think I was probably more focused on, on the job, not overly focused on my career. Ambition is fine, but if your ambition today is all, all about wanting to get to the next thing, then actually that's not the right way to live life. Ambition is right in terms of wanting to do in your current job as well as you possibly can, in the hope that your superiors might think, actually this bloke's doing a really good job, so we'll put him on to the next thing. So you shouldn't look over the horizon, but you should really focus on what you're currently doing. And probably my family would say, whether it's through my own choice or just circumstance, I was away an awful lot. I was away on operations on my 21st birthday. I was away on operations on my 50th birthday, which did lead a friend to say to me, come on, isn't it time you grew up and did something sensible? So yeah, priorities are important. And I may have sometimes prioritised work ahead of my wife and family.
0: But would you say that it wasn't prioritising work because you were so ambitious to move to the next level? It was because you had ended up, you know, particularly when you were the head of the British Army. That's not a job that you can do part-time. You're either in it or you're not. So almost as a victim of circumstance, would you
3: say? Yes, I think I think that's probably right. I mean, if I, I think in any field of life, if you're a conscientious person with a strong sense of duty, whatever you see... The requirement of you is what you want to put one hundred and ten percent into. So, yes, one did one's duty as conscientiously and as thoroughly as one could because it was the right thing to do. I mean, fortunately, with my wife very understanding, particularly when I was away for extended periods of time, and you know we had three little boys and she was in Germany, and I was you know away for six months, all the responsibility of running a family effectively as a single parent, knowing that the other part of the family was in some form of danger, was a challenge. And then, of course, it got worse for her because, the time when I was commander in chief, the number two post in the army, and then chief of the general staff, the number one post. Bertie, our middle son, was in the army as well. He did two tours in Iraq and a tour in Afghanistan. So it wasn't just a husband who was away; it was a son who was away as well. Frankly, top marks to my wife and absolutely. And, and, and were, top marks to the were you aware well. of
0: that at the time, or is it only in hindsight you realise the pressures it puts on the family?
3: I think if you, and this isn't intended to be a plug, but if you read my autobiography, Leading from the Front, I make quite a number of references to how remarkable Pippa was to do this while I wasn't there. I think it was probably only later on that actually I realised a bit of a selfish so-and-so. But probably selfish because I wanted to get the duty done, to get the job done. But actually it did mean there was a tremendous amount of extra pressure on on my wife and the family and on the children. I think I realised that probably in retrospect. If I could live certain parts of my life again from a domestic point of view I think I would do it slightly differently I'm embarrassed sometimes when I think about what I decided sometimes which was in line with my military duty but not actually um the best for the family in terms of passing on your wisdom to
2: anyone that might listen to this Richard what advice would you give somebody that has that sense of duty that they want to do the best they can but they're also trying to balance situations similar to your own
3: Well, I think what I would say is it's priorities, getting your priorities sorted out. And my priorities on reflection, my top priority is sorting out what I want to believe in, because what I want to believe in will determine who I am. My second priority should be the family, and my third priority should be the job. That's what I've worked out subsequently. Relief would probably always have been there, number one, but probably the job would have come ahead of the family. And I think that um, belief, family, job is probably the right priority list to um, to operate uh, to.
0: We've spoken on this podcast with Stephen Hendry, multiple world champion, right? All he did was hit snooker balls on, on the bays, right? You were making decisions that would cost, if they were wrong, cost the lives of hundreds, maybe even thousands of people. They would change the course of history. It's very difficult, isn't it, to still prioritise your family when those are the stakes that you're playing with. I wonder when you were making those decisions, career decisions, whether you alla- whether you mentally allowed yourself to go to the place of, maybe you had to, the impact of this on people's lives, or whether it just wasn't a, a sort of a healthy thing to to consider all that.
3: Yes, you do have to impact, consider the impact on people's lives, but equally you've got to weigh up what the task is, the magnitude of the task. I mean, leadership and its simplest form is balancing a trinity of the task, what you've got to do, building a team in order to be able to do it, and then looking after the interests of the individual. If you can get that balance right between task, team and individual, that is probably a pretty good formula. To give an example, when I was commander-in-chief and we were running operations in Iraq and Afghanistan, it had the army under huge pressure. We had to find an extra battalion of soldiers to go to Iraq. The only battalion that was vaguely available were the Grenadier Guards, with whom my middle son was serving. Now, he was actually already in Iraq serving with the parachute regiment. I had to make the decision that um, the Grenadier Guards were going to go early to Iraq. Bertie then got in touch with me and said, hey, Dad, is it true that as soon as I finish this tour with two para, I'm going back to Iraq with the Grenadiers? I said, Bertie, yep, I'm afraid that's right. And he was home, I think, for only about three weeks before he redeployed back to Iraq with his own regiment. So I had to take that decision as commander in chief, knowing it would impact on my middle son. And um, that was that was difficult for him. I think
0: one of the other the other things that I've been so impressed by with with your career is the fact that you did things that were a challenge, but you believed in them. So you followed them through. Um, And there were some big decisions and then much I suppose smaller, but more, you know, significant decisions like making sure that Prince Harry could serve properly as a soldier, keeping it quiet, making sure he was trained, stopping the media from sharing the story. I know there was a frustration that in the end that the news did escape that he was serving under, under the British army. But why was it so important to you that if something felt right, you had to make sure it happened when it would have been easier at times to just sidestep back?
3: Well, again, I I think if you've worked out what the right thing is, you want to make sure the right thing happens. I mean, you used the example of Prince Harry. Undoubtedly, as a young officer who had trained at Sandhurst, enthusiastic young man, he wanted to be with troops in a conflict situation. We tried to get into Iraq. The press speculated. The speculation was so accurate that we couldn't send him. We then had this extraordinary moment when I asked all the editors of the major television, radio, print media outlets to come to a meeting in Ministry of Defence, when I said, look, I need to get Prince Harry on operations in Afghanistan, and you want to be able to report that story. But if you speculate, I can't send him. So why don't we do a deal that we will make his story available to you in training beforehand while he's operating and afterwards, but you don't report anything until it's over. And quite extraordinarily, they signed up to that. We knew it would break at some point. But he was there for 10 weeks, 10 weeks that absolutely made a man of him and defined his military career. Extraordinary to get away with it. We told virtually nobody, didn't tell our ambassador in Afghanistan, for example. I did brief the Secretary of State for Defense, who told me I'd never get away with it. He was courteous enough afterwards to say, hmm, well, I thought you wouldn't get away with it, but well done uh, uh, that you did. But it was the right thing to do. Fast forward, when I was about to become Chief of the General Staff, having the previous two years training the army for this dual deployment in Iraq and Afghanistan. And we were only really configured for one such operation but circumstances required us to do two. The army was under huge pressure. So I wrote a very lengthy letter to the Secretary of State for Defence to say these are the problems that the army has got Um, and we were hemorrhaging manpower at that stage. These are the things that we need to do to increase the welfare support for soldiers in some areas to increase their pay and allowances, in some areas to increase their medical support and welfare support and some of their equipment, but he just didn't get it. So I had a problem then if having gone to the top of the political decision-making process and said, these are the problems, you know, we'll do the job, but actually give us the tools to do the job, and he didn't get it. I then chose to go public and talk to the media. Now, this was all well and good, but it very nearly backfired after the Daily Mail had slightly over-dramatised an apparent split between me and the Prime Minister. There was a serious danger I'd get, I'd get sacked. And I was in my office sort of the morning after this broke and I'd done lots of media stuff to explain the circumstances that we were in, that we needed to prioritise between Iraq and Afghanistan. And at that stage, Afghanistan was more important. So we needed to wrap up in Iraq as soon as possible. I saw a sort of breaking news bar come across my television set in the office that said... PM backs General Danat. I thought, well, I'm in real trouble now. If apparently he backs me, he's probably about to sack me. But um, it it didn't happen. But it was the right thing to do, even though it was very uncomfortable at the time. But it meant that um, when I'd finished my three years as Chief of the General Staff, there was no question that Danat would become Chief of the Defence Staff. The only place that I could go was the Tower of London. Um, (laughs) And that's where I went as Constable for the next seven years, which was Uh, very enjoyable.
0: If you had lost your job, would it have made it the wrong thing to have done?
3: Well, my number two said to me around that time, he said, Richard, if you resign because of the problems we've got, just remember the next morning, all those problems are my problems. So actually, I never threatened to resign. I did try and put quite a little pressure on because that was the right thing to do. And we did make some progress in in, in a number of areas. And over time, we won quite a number of the arguments. It made me very unpopular with Messrs Blair and Brown as Prime Ministers. It made me pretty unpopular, actually, also with the heads of the other two services, because we were doing the heavy lifting, the fighting and the dying, and by and large the the Navy and the Air Force weren't. But the major share of resources was going to their major equipment programmes, whether it was aircraft carriers, frigates, destroyers, fast jets and whatever. But we needed the goods, we needed the tools now to be successful in Iraq and Afghanistan where we were fighting and dying. But to me, it's fascinating because that's
2: a very different type of leadership that you described when you went in to Northern Ireland in the early 70s and then by the 1990s. The leadership there has been a diplomat in so many ways, which is very different. What lessons did you learn in that second career almost as a diplomatic leader that our listeners could learn from?
3: The biggest lesson I learned from that period of time And I'd had an opportunity about 20 years before, for three years I was the military assistant as a lieutenant colonel to the Minister of State for the Armed Forces, the number two minister in the Ministry of Defence. So I'd watched senior officers interacting with senior politicians. But the lesson I learned from that and learned from my own experience is that if we do our own job to the best of our ability and don't tread on the toes of someone else, it works quite well. Which I mean... Let politicians decide the policy, let generals, admirals and air marshals decide how we're going to do it, and don't let's get on each other's turf, but work up a good relationship to work together, to recognise their strengths, and they have to recognise our strengths, and then you work together as a team. Um, If you get on each other's turf, that's when the friction starts, relationships break down and it doesn't work properly.
0: And we spoke about inferiority complex as a young soldier leading a group of men. What about when you're sitting in front of prime ministers and members of the royal family? Do you then get that inferiority complex or did you at that point in your life feel that you absolutely belonged and you had the knowledge and the information to completely speak your truth? Because for a lot of the people that listen to this podcast, that's when they feel like they're most powerful, when they really believe what they're saying.
3: Yes, it's a, this was an iterative process, a cumulative process. If it was a 20-year-old second lieutenant, I'd found myself where I was with the difficulties and responsibilities I had in my mid-50s as Chief of General Staff. I wouldn't have had the foggiest what to do. But your experience does build up over time. You make mistakes and I made mistakes. The important thing about making mistakes is that you learn from those mistakes and your confidence in yourself and your confidence in your ability to do what you've got to do grows. You you mentioned it in the context of of the royal family over the course of the last many years. I've met all the senior members of the royal family and Her Majesty on, on many occasions. It's always a pleasure and a, and a thrill to meet her, but I, I don't feel intimidated or awkward because one respects who she is and what she does. And there's a certain amount of mutual respect as well that she recognises at that point in time, I was ahead head of her army or in other times that I've, I've met her more recently in other roles. So your confidence grows on a cumulative basis. And I think that's an important thing to realize. Sometimes, you know, you find yourself in a situation where you are out of your depth. Well, that's when you've got to work jolly hard. And back to the earlier part of our conversation, you you have to fall back on your training, fall back on your instinct. And um, I've never really, I've never believed in not saying I couldn't do something. I've sort of looked around and seen what's going on. And yeah, I'll give this a good shot. Have Um, you believed in
0: being vulnerable in front of people?
3: It depends the circumstances that you're in. If you're in a high profile leadership position, it doesn't do to look vulnerable. I mean, there's a slight danger in what what I'm saying there because if you're trying not to look vulnerable, you might make a hasty decision, which could be a wrong decision. I've mentioned before that when there's time, it's perfectly reasonable to ask other people for their point of view, to try and get their view on a decision that you've got to make. That's, That's a strength. That isn't, a, that isn't a vulnerability. But when you're in that position and the faces are turning to you with the unspoken question, what do we do now? That's a moment when you have to be confident and decide and lead. That's not a moment to be vulnerable. For our listeners on this, I'm trying to think of a good way
2: of, of, of asking this question, that when you're looking into the face of real power, whether this is hereditary power that you described with the royal family or people that have been elected into positions where they can shape world events. Most of us are never going to be in that position of, of, of being so up close and personal with it. What's the one thing that you've seen or learned from being in that position that you think it'd be valuable for our listeners to understand?
3: I think the most important thing is to realize many uh, of the situations that we're confronted with in life are pretty complex you might have worked out what is your way through that complexity. The frustration comes when the other parties to that complexity don't agree with you. So what you have to do is be prepared to argue the case, be logical about it, to try and explain to other people why this course of action is the right course of action. And if you're absolutely determined it is, then you have to argue the case enthusiastically and be fairly determined about it. And this is something the latter part of my career, particularly when as a senior military person, you were dealing with politicians who didn't have the same no criticism here, but just their background doesn't give them the same understanding of the issues that I grew up dealing with. You've got to explain, you've got to argue, you've got to try and show that this course of action is the right course of action. And that takes patience, patience is the opposite opposite of frustration, to just whittle away at it. Um, you know some of the things I'm involved in in now um, you know, I'd like everyone to agree with me but it's ne- never going to be the way you've got to I- explain why this course of action is the right thing to do you know, I'm involved in several things in the 10 years since I've left the army well I can't act like a general now I've left the army because why should people just do what he says because you know, he used to be a general so this is where leadership becomes a much more um, onerous in that you've got to get people to do what you want them to do because they think it's the right course of action. They can see the sense of it, the wisdom of it, and therefore they'll fall in line behind you. See, that's fascinating, though,
2: because I can imagine that you've had years of being conditioned, that you've risen up through the ranks, and you've had that, uh, that there'd have been a time in your life that, that when you said something, there's battalions move in the direction that you, that, that you do them. How have you coped with that transition, then, out of military life where... Well, like you say, that now you might make a command and people don't respond. They don't move as quickly
3: as you'd want. Well, I think you have to realise absolutely that, that the principles of leadership that I learnt while I was serving, those principles apply equally in the civilian world. But how you apply them and act as a leader yourself has to be done differently. You've got to convince people that this course of action make sense, and that they and that they want to do that. I mean, current example, I chair the National Emergencies Trust, um, something that was set up um, after the Manchester Arena bombing and the um, Grenfell Tower fire, uh, where particularly the public was very generous, a lot of fundraising went on, quite a lot of the money didn't go where it should have gone. So the National Emergencies Trust was, was set up to be a single point of the public's generosity to raise money quickly and then distribute it where it was needed. So we launched our coronavirus appeal on the 18th of March last year, very quickly raised just short of £100 million, and distributed it pretty quickly right around the country through the Community Foundation Network. Now, it doesn't take very long to say that, but actually building up the organisation to have the capability to do that. You know, as chairman, I had to build a team, get that team to operate in the way I wanted it to do, not because... I'm Lord Downat or I'm General Downat, therefore you will do what I say. But actually this looks like a sensible plan, so let's get behind it and make it happen. And good people working with me, we're a good team, and it has happened. But how important would you
2: describe the trait of humility then? Because the way that you describe it indicates a a fair amount of humility on your part not to use status or title or
3: previous experience. Humility is a really important quality. Yes, it doesn't necessarily characterise senior military people um, because we have to be confident we have to be seen to be in charge but humility and knowing your own weaknesses even just privately knowing your own weaknesses are that's a really important part so yes humility is an important characteristic uh, an important trait of character sometimes quite difficult to follow but 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 something not to forget
0: We've reached the point of our quickfire questions. We always end the podcast with these, Richard. The first is your three non-negotiable behaviours that you live by and that people around you must buy into.
3: Truth, um, as honesty, is is really, really important. Integrity, because people will look at you as a leader and their perception of your degree of integrity will determine the degree of enthusiasm they have in, in following you I think the third one is kindness uh, some would call it love but it's probably getting a bit too bit too flaky for a soldier so let, let's let's call it kindness what advice would you give to a teenage richard just starting out if they liked the, the, an outdoor life they like working with other people they liked a sense of adventure I would certainly say to them consider a career in the armed forces um, particularly consider a career in the army but I think I'd take it back to where we started our conversation the bits of advice I would give is aim high decide what you want to do raise the bar make it a little bit higher a bit more demanding on yourself and secondly be the best just do the best that you can and remember that courage is key and that it's that moral courage which will strengthen in you every time you do the right thing it'll be easier to do the right thing the next time aim high be the best courage is key. Are you happy? Yes, I am. I'm very happy. Probably, even at my stage in life, too busy. But then if I'm too busy, I'm a fool to myself because I've taken on too many things. But actually, being busy means you get fairly fulfilled. Where we live here, Jake, the River Year runs past. We had terrible flooding around Christmas. Norfolk suddenly realised it had to do better with flooding. The leader of the county council rang me up and said, we're just going to form the Norfolk Strategic Flooding Alliance. We think we want an independent chairman would you be that independent chairman? I am living, breathing, flooding in Norfolk <laughs> on top of everything else I'm doing in a way that Remarkable. if I was sensible, I would have said no, but I said yeah. yes.
1: Okay.
3: Great challenge. Absolutely. How important is legacy to you? Legacy is important in terms of your children and your grandchildren. They are your legacy. You know, I'm fortunate to have three sons and a daughter. They're all happily married ten grandchildren, eight grandsons and, and two granddaughters, they are the legacy. Yes, some of the things you do in work can become a legacy, but I think I think your family and investing in your family, they are your legacy.
0: And the final word from you really, um, your one golden rule for people to live a high performance life.
3: It's priorities, setting your priorities and getting them right. Priority one, belief, that defines who you are. Second, I said it earlier, I think it is family and that comes back to the legacy point and and a close third and you've got to get the balance right there is the job that you're doing the work that's in front of you, the duty that's in front of you and doing that as faithfully as well as you possibly can.
0: Thank you so much for coming and joining us and I I like the fact that you've ended with belief because i think that that really is the theme that runs through your entire life really it was the belief to be in the armed forces we haven't even spoken about the fact that you had a serious stroke in your mid 20s that could have killed you you had the belief to come back from that i think when you're leading the british army belief is is absolutely vital but in all of those areas where you made big decisions whether it's standing on a street corner being shot at or whether it is sitting in front of the prime minister defending the hundreds or tens of thousands of people in your command belief in what you were doing and how you were doing it was the only way that you were going to be successful and you absolutely have been so thank you so much for coming and sharing such brilliant lessons in leadership with us
3: thank you jake Damien, thank you very much indeed thoroughly enjoyed the conversation
0: damien jake I've found that different to every podcast that I think we've ever recorded, but just as fascinating and interesting. You know, you don't get much higher in the world of leadership than, than leading the British Army.
2: No, they use a phrase, don't they, in the military. They talk, they talk about we live in a VUCA world where things are volatile, uncertain, complex and ambiguous. And I think what Richard spoke about there was how do you navigate your way through that VUCA world that of literally life and death decisions
0: that you're making. It was it was a real privilege to listen to. And you can see how integrity is central to everything that he's done. You know, he spoke at the beginning, didn't he, about people had doubts about him when he first arrived as a sort of young soldier leading them. And a short period after that, he had the military cross for incredible bravery in the field. And then he went on to, to lead the British Army. But you can't get to that position, I don't think, without a really smart understanding of yourself, but crucially of other human beings as well.
2: Yeah, people management is, uh, is, is critical. Even down to the principles he was describing about trying to influence Tony Blair or Gordon Brown on strategy of investment in the military is about people management, as he said, using logic, but also being enthusiasm. So winning the hearts and the minds of people is critical to all leaders.
0: And I'm, I'm usually really critical of people that come on this podcast and talk about how important their job is over their family. But actually, when Richard sits and talks to us, he doesn't even describe it as a job, does he? He describes it as a duty. Yeah. And you can see not only how you end up in a position where that job becomes your life, but also... I'm sort of pleased about that because I want the person who's leading the British Army to have that their single-minded focus because it's the safety and security of the country and of the people fighting for us.
2: Yeah, I had a bit of a weird metaphor in my head about like, who would you rather have flying a plane? Was it somebody that's just come off a big party the night before or is it somebody that actually loves aviation and is really prepared? Well, you'd feel safe in the hands of that second one. And like you say, that who would you rather have defending... The country and the safety somebody that sees it as a bit of a hobby or somebody that lives and breeds it absolutely
0: oh so interesting and i i think also for us to speak to him now you know when he's 70 we see a very different lord Dannett to the man that we would have seen in his 30s 40s or 50s i think
2: yeah i think so but like i said at the start i spoke to uh, a relative that had served in the british forces under him when he was Uh, commanding it and they spoke there about that integrity the fact that he defended soldiers rights he spoke up to the powers that be and represented his people and that brought him real loyalty and uh, and i don't think that's any different from the man we see today
0: brilliant thanks for your time mate no thanks mate. loved it well thanks very much for being involved in this week's high performance podcast i hope you've enjoyed it I can't believe that's it for the fourth series, but the good news is despite the fact that we're going to take a short break from releasing episodes, you can't escape from us. The High Performance Circle is waiting for you right now. It's free. It's our club. It's access to even more content, even more inspiring people, even more brilliant messages than ever before. Just go to the com. put your email address in, we'll send you an invite. And you'll be in the club for free. And that is it. Myself and Damien Hughes can't thank you enough for your company throughout this series. The numbers of downloads have been off the scale. The conversations we've been having on our social media has been amazing. If you don't already, Damien's a great person to follow. He's inspiring. He's full of wisdom, tips, hints. He's brilliant. You can find him at Liquid Thinker on his Instagram. You can find at High Performance on Instagram as well. You can also subscribe to our YouTube channel that has tens of thousands of subscribers already. Just go to YouTube, type in High Performance Podcast and find it right there. And worry not, we will be back for Series 5 in just a few weeks' time. Bigger better, more inspiring than ever. See you soon.